You're listening to the Laugh Factory Podcast Network. For more shows, visit the podcast page at laughfactory.com. Here we go. Hey, guys. Welcome to the After Laugh Pre-Laugh. Here I am with Tommy Wakefield. How are you doing, Tommy? Good to be here. Good, Good to be employed. <laughs> You're still employed. That's amazing. My mom's impressed. She's like, wow, you've held down a job for more than a year. Good That's for you. That's true. Everyone working here is impressed, Tommy. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. Um, you notice I didn't say Zowsers. I just don't think anyone cares. They'll never get traction. You got to put it on a shirt or no one cares. I'm going to die alone. <laughs> so um, this episode is an interesting one because it's with Jamie Kennedy. Now, Jamie Kennedy um, is someone who I toured with for almost four years. And I wrote his Comedy Central. I co-wrote his Comedy Central special. Um and I've worked with him. We've had an interesting friendship. When people ask me about the friendship, I ask them if they saw the movie Funny People with Adam Sandler and Seth Rogen. And if they did, I'm like, yep, that's pretty much it. <laughs> I was obviously the Seth Rogen character. He was the Adam Sandler character. When I met Jamie, I was less than two years into comedy. And uh, Jamie Masada said, hey, buddy, you got to bring him on the road. So I started going on the road with Jamie Kennedy. Um, and we had a falling out. We had a big falling out in San Francisco. And this episode, I make an amends to Jamie. Have you listened to it, Tommy? I have not yet. Nice, nice producer. Tommy. Well, I mean, I haven't edited it yet. This is- <laughs> he has like a full-time job. I'm giving him a hard time. Um, it's, uh, yeah, I make a formal amends to Jamie Kennedy, which he was not expecting. And uh, I think it goes over pretty well, considering... Um, one of the most interesting things about this podcast to me and about Jamie was the way that he created himself. And he talks about in the podcast, not as much as I think I wanted him to, but he basically, um, to get traction, he created a character named Morty Power, who was like an old Jew from Florida. It was like, hey, you got to see this kid, Jamie Kennedy, before. And he'd push buttons like, bring, bring, bring. Oh, I got to get the other line. I mean, he did a That's whole. So funny. And Morty Power. Morty Power. Um, and he wrote a book about it called Wannabe. Anyway, Jamie is an interesting, <laughs> interesting, smart, deep guy with a lot of dimensions. And uh, he came to this podcast kicking and screaming because, um, because you know, I guess I was kind of a dick to him back in the day. And um, I had to make amends on this podcast, and I think we're cool now. So uh, it was cool. It was a good thing to experience. I hope you guys like it. And uh, remember, if you like this, please subscribe. And please tell your friends and give it five stars on iTunes. And uh, I think we're going to do a little outro for that too because we gotta we got to blow this motherfucker up. Uh, anyway, please enjoy Jamie Kennedy and The After Laugh. It's the After Laugh, After Laugh. Welcome to the After Laugh, After Laugh, After Laugh. <laughs> after Laugh, man. <laughs> Go ahead and pull up a chair. You know, hung out. Jamie Kennedy, man. How you doing? Whoa. You got me. Well, it's you got me. <laughs> Tell them. Um, You've been coming after me. Yeah, I've been begging Jamie to do my podcast. And for, for <laughs> literally, literally begging you. And I think the reason is because you are, you are as much responsible for my career in comedy. Wait, I have a career? Uh, as anyone. And I would include Jamie Masada in that. Wow. Um, because when I was a year in, at the old Times Square Laugh Factory, you headlined. You remember the Times Square Laugh Factory? Dude, 
I'm going to let you get it out, but you were only a year in? I was like, maybe a year and a half, yeah. Oh, my God. Masada fucking hooked you Masada up. Masada hooked me up. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I had no idea. I thought you were like 10 years in. Oh, my God. This explains so much. <laughs> it does. Fuck. Oh, my God. Can we tell you that that club to this day, I miss it. Oh, it was. So tell no one them here what knows it was. It. it was. It used to be a strip club called... Show World. Back in the, and it was, in the 70s, it's this place where you see all the movies like Taxi Driver, all those movies where the seediest part of Times Square was, yep. was that club. And they'd have the peep shows where there would be the glass screen and the woman would – like a live peep show. I think yeah. up even when we were at the Laugh Factory in the early years, early 2000s or mid-2000s, it was still there. Like the women behind the glass – the guys would spunk on the thing, and yeah. Jenner would. No, you put a dime in, yeah, and you start tossing it, <laughs> and you just as hard as you get it going, the thing goes down. You need to get another dime, and it goes up, and you're like, yeah, yeah, and then the dime goes down. You have to have a bunch of dimes. Yeah, yeah. So it takes and then a after, while. After the live peep show, they had recorded peep shows, where it was the same thing, but a video that you would jerk off, which is so bizarre. This is pre like high speed internet. Yeah, but also you'd have like this when you're when you're tossing it, jacking it. And you put the thing goes up. There's another guy across, and you might make eye contact, and he's tossing it. And he's usually in his 80s, and you're like, "Who am I jacking off to? Her or him?" And it's yeah, it's a lot going on there. So what happened in New York is Giuliani put this thing called the 60/40 policy in place, where any adult entertainment business had to be 40% legit. Mm. So Show World became 40% Laugh Factory. Yeah. So they were actually the same business. And it was run by a mob guy named yes. Richard Brasciano. Don't say names. Jesus Christ. I didn't Everyone know he was in the mob. All right. I hope we got Dude, there. if he's not dead now, like, okay. come All right. on. Well, I, whatever. Him. I think he was like 900 years you're old. You're a nice person, Richard. Go ahead. So, um, so basically, like our bosses were the mob when Jamie was not in town, which is hilarious because they'd show up. It looked just like extras from Soprano. Wait. So let me tell you this, and then I want you to go and speak on it. But- well, I, I'm sitting there, and it was when my first special came out called Unwashed. Yeah. Right? And so I'm there, and and I fucking – it's independent, but it's not. It's Image Entertainment, who is now bought by Narcel or another company. That's just a big company. They bought all everyone's content, right? And they're going to distribute it everywhere. So at the time, they had a deal – to do these DVDs, and this was 06, mm-hmm. and you know DVDs, you could move a million units if you did it right. I did not. <laughs> and I needed a New York presence, and somehow Masada had the side of a fucking building. Yeah. And he's like, buddy, look what I do for you. I'm in New York, like, doing, like, Good Morning in New York, promoting, like, Son of the Master or something. He goes, look what I do for you. And I go, what? And he goes, come to 44th and 8th. And on the side of a Giant fucking building billboard. is me. And he goes, do you like that? And I say, yeah, I love it. Now, I was in a parking lot. There was like a crackhead in front of it, some lady giving birth. But it was big. Yeah, it was big. And he goes, do you like that? And it was actually bigger than a movie poster, Son of the Mask, which I did. It was bigger than a New Line poster. I remember. It was enormous. Yes. Yes. And people would tell me, dude, I see you on 44th and 8th. And he goes, do you like it to be up there? <laughs> I said, I love it. And he goes, for two years? And I said, yes. And he goes, okay. You come to New York, you work for me for three years. I said, what? He goes, I got the new club. I do this. I'm not doing the impression right now. You know I can, but he goes, I'm making him friends. He goes, you come, you play this room, you this room, you're going to love it, buddy. I go, what's the deal? He goes, buddy, we figure out, you know, when you see the heads, we count the heads. We decide what piece of the head you get. I take another piece of the head. So he had 16 fucking rooms. Yeah. He literally had four rooms. I think there were a total of five rooms there, yeah. Five fucking rooms. And the next thing I know, I'm in a contract, but I never signed. I know you were in a contract. That's crazy. For three fucking years. (laughs) 
at the height of my like movie career, but also at like the beginning of not the beginning, but like I was always a comic, but like the real nice meaty part of me starting to headline. Yeah. And boom, I'm like I never but I didn't have a big New York presence there. I played Caroline's a lot and they played yeah. just starting to play Gotham. So I didn't know. So I would do that place fucking twice a year. And what I love about it was I don't know. I think we would do sets at 4 a.m. And in the front row, there'd be people from Norway. There'd be pimps. There'd be prostitutes. Yes. There would be fucking gangsters. There would be tech nerds. There would be, be- – it was, to me, what a comedy club should be. Mm-hmm. It was a hang. You would never know what the adventure was going to be. You would end up smoking a J, having a drink, meeting a, a woman, you know, chilling out, end up going to a party downtown. You know how it was. Yes. And it was fucking great. Yeah. I love the vibe. I wanted it. I think his rent was like a hundred G's a month, something nuts. Yeah. And I was, and I, I missed that club because it was like our, yeah. it's not the comedy store by any means, but it was trying to be like that. It was trying to be its own. It was a great vibe. Yeah. Yeah. And it was like the last, it was where like old New York and new York, new New York were like colliding right uh-huh. there. Cause everything was getting disnified just East of that area. And this yeah. was a still like still last like vestiges of old stripper streetwalker yeah. in New York. Yeah. So it had this cool gritty vibe. Although like a lot of like places people were like, I'm not gonna work at a strip club. Um, I do wanna say Jamie introduced us. So and, tell your side of that story. Well, man, I really wanna say this, and I'm telling you, dude, we can cut this out, but this is my favorite fuck one of my favorite memories of you, dude. There was a girl who was like in love with you. She was like, Jamie, man, uh, like like and she wanted to like make out with you or something. Uh-huh. <laughs> And you were like, you know, like run inter- run interference, like just like I said, go ahead, be real. Basically, like this girl went into the stairwell and and blew you. No, no, no. Or Who like, said I got blown? I no one said that. that <laughs> that's the rumor. But like this girl wanted to blow you. Wanted you to blow like, me. And you were like, uh, you're like, oh, Bill, give me it. So I had to like vamp time before you went on stage, and I was like. This is what being a comic is all about. Uh, sign me up. So after that, wait, retake that. So just retake that. So you edit that part out. So, so what's your favorite story? Get it and use other phrasing, please. Um, some girl wanted to have a private discussion with you in the hallway, and in the hallway of the, and she she wanted to talk to you privately. Okay, about something. She wanted to give me a hug. Or she wanted to give you some sort of hug. Some sort of hug. Yes. And so, um, a hug, hug, an oral hug. I'm look, I wasn't in the hallway. Okay. All right. I'm guessing. Okay. I don't remember <laughs> this, but I don't remember a lot of things. From that I time. mean, I th- you know me well enough that I was pretty provincial when you met me. I'm yeah. still provincial now, but like the idea that a girl would be that into you, that she would just, whether it happened or not, allegedly or not, just blow you in a hallway wow. in between sets wow. was like, man, this is whatever this life is, man, this is the life I fucking want. So I came up to you and I said, and I was like, Jamie, can I open for you? Can I open for you on the road? Mm-hmm. I just like approached. I think Masada like he's about to used to ask him to open for you. I don't know if he actually did he arrange it or did I just approach you? Keep going, then I'll tell you what I remember. So I, I just said, Hey, Jamie, I'd love to open for you on the road. I was like kind of starstruck, and I was like, Man, I'm, I'm a big fan. <laughs> and then uh, you were like, Okay, sure. Like basically, like if you drive to Cleveland. Like, I'll, I'll put you up. So I did the thing that the early features do where I drove to Bo- – I think maybe the first show was Boston. Probably. I drove to Boston. And after that, I drove to Cleveland. And I kept, like, driving. And I kept showing up. You were like – I think after a while, you were like, all right, fine. You'll be my feature. 
Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I just beat you into submission. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much what happened. Definitely. <laughs> what, what's your take? Well, I remember that club, and like I said, and I loved all of the stuff about that club. And then I remember you going up, and I don't. At that time, I didn't really bring anybody. I would bring other people, but then it just Masada's like I have other people, and he had a lot of comics there. So he put you up, and I remember you would murder. You would kill. Now, you're only a year and a half in, which I didn't know, and you were murdering. And then it was all like, you know how they say neurological conditioning, as you know about all that stuff. And it was like watching you kill. Then I had to follow you, which is not easy. And then I'm like doing my own thing, and I would do very well there. And then I would come off stage, and the DVDs, Masada would sell these fucking things for me. He would? He would sell them at... This is why he's a genius, right? (laughs) This is why I love him. He is like fucking Crazy Gideon, right? He fucking (laughs) take the DVDs, unfucking leash it, unwrap it. He goes, what's your name? Crystal? Crystal? The impression I can do is she's not doing it now. (laughs) Is your name Crystal? And he would write Crystal. And he goes, okay, 35. She goes, 35? He goes, I already wrote your name. Come on, you want me to ruin it? Your name is on there. 35, boom. Okay, what's your name? Come on, Howard. And he did this, and I mean, I don't know if that's extortion or bilking. And after one show at like midnight, still the most, I sold $3,000 in DVDs, which... Is listen. I know you make movies and TV and all stuff. That's Dude, a lot of money. That's a lot for of DVDs. Money, which in is just 2006. Like tax free cash, basically. Yeah, it was fucking cash in my pocket. And he goes, "Here you go, buddy. Here you go. We do this deal. We do the three years, whatever." And he would fucking sign them, make them sign it for me, make me sign it, and he would just kind of verbally fucking yoda them. And the next thing I know, boom, I probably made six G's over that weekend. And DVD sales. I ran out. Like, the only time I ever ran out. Yeah, yeah. And it was at that time. It was a new club. I was killing him, watching you. You're killing it. I'm killing it on DVDs. And he goes, this guy right here, this would open for him. You should open. So now I have a billboard, right? I got 6000 from DVDs, and I got another person he's telling me you should open for. He's already two for two. Yeah. So I'm like, okay. He goes, take him on the road. This is what we do. Masada told me. To have you open for me because you need the sense. regular person, blah, blah, blah. And my agent said if the guy can write, have him, he'll make him do the dirty work and write and watch your set. And that's how openers are, which is, I can tell you what I believe openers should do, but that's what they did. And anyway, yeah. Masada did it and he was right. Yeah. And it was great. And it was great for and a you, long time. You did it. And, and one of the things I want to talk to you, Jamie, too, which I, I don't want to get too logged in like backstory, but I got to tell you, man, your origin story is one of the coolest origin stories I've had a lot of comics on the show, and they tell me, but your book, Wannabe, yes. which I don't know. I think I read the book before I met you because I was doing like a script doctoring for, for movies in New York, and I did a script doctor for a movie called, for a guy named Balthazar Cormacor, who's like a big director, but it's mm-hmm. about a comic, so I wanted to find autobiographies of comics, and I read Wannabe, and I don't know if people fell asleep on the book, but that book blew my fucking mind so a lot of people don't know about it tell me so tell me kind of like the story the main story of that because i still find it unbelievable like the beginnings or how i started well, so or, I, for my it is a good book it's got killer reviews yeah it is and it's and, also yeah like your story like you didn't come like it's not like you came in, into comedy easily like a life was handed to you you were like no. a middle class dude from no, I'm from I'm from right on like you know West Philadelphia, born and raised. That's Will Smith. I'm like <laughs> on the other side of that called Upper Darby, which sneakily has a lot of people 
in our business from it, which was even more comedians, which is weird. So it's like there's like literally like this train tracks and it's like West Philly and like Will Smith. He's at that area. And then like the other side is like, you know, the suburb area. And that's where I'm from. It's called yeah. Upper Darby and everybody, all the different races would meet on 69th Street. And it was like, you know, black, Korean, Italian, Greek, gay, straight, trans, whatever. I mean, it was like a mini New York. Yeah. And so, I don't know. I mean, growing up in Philly, everybody was fucking around and everybody had to be funny to not get your ass beat. You know, and sometimes if you were funny, you would still get your ass beat. (laughs) And everybody was, you know, has PTSD. I mean, from Philly, like Philly's a hard area. I mean, it's great. And I could, so I got to experience the street life, but always run back to the suburbs. Yeah. I mean, my life wasn't hard. It was in a lot of other ways, but I never wanted for anything. Listen, I went to Catholic school and all this stuff, but I had always had a pretty nice house and I had two parents that lived for fucking my whole life. Just recently passed. It was a long story ago, but I mean, I'm very fortunate. Yeah. And so... I can never complain about my upbringing. Yeah. And so I, I, Seth, I'll tell you who's from there. Seth Green, he's from Overbrook. Ryan Phillippe, I think, is from over there. Kevin Bacon is from Villanova. Tina Fey is from Upper Darby or somewhere right outside. Um, Todd Rungren, the first ever thing I heard about with fame was a guy named Todd Rungren. And he grew up around the block. And the, when the houses have a thing where there's a house and it's it's a, whatever, it's an end of a street and you got to, whatever that's called. What cul-de-sac? Fuck? Yeah, he lived in the cul-de-sac on Merwood Drive, Todd Rungren. And he was like a huge rock star in the 70s. They're like, yo, Todd's a rock star. I'm like, who the fuck's Todd? And I go, Todd Rungren, dude. He's a rock star. Remember the dude from Merwood? I'm like, who's that? John Capoletti. I don't know if you know who that is. He was a big football player in the 70s, something for Joe. He was a movie. So anyway, we had these people – that would come out. And the first time I ever saw like a movie being filmed was a movie with Michael Caine called Clean and Sober. And it was filmed in another parish school. I went to St. Alice and he was, I think it was Good Shepherd or some school like that. And everybody was talking about being an extra. And I was like, how the fuck do you do that? And Michael Keaton's funny dude from Mr. Mom is filming this dark drama about being clean and sober. And I was probably like 14 at the time. Do you know you want to be an actor at this point? No, but I got the bug of like, I knew that if you stood in front of that camera, people liked you more. <laughs> and and people were all like clamoring for him. And I thought that was cool. I've always been attracted to the performers of like the fame and the excitement and the people wanting you. So clearly there's a want in it. And it's like I, I never got in this business to, you know, because I was this pained artist. I got in this business because I wanted attention. Yeah. You know what I mean? I wanted love, gratification, all that stuff, you know. And then I couldn't really do anything. I'm like – I wanted to quit school. I'm like, I think I want to be an actor. My mom's like, you're crazy. So then it comes to 18 and I'm done school. And I'm working at Domino's and I take a local acting class. And the lady in the class is like, you're you're really good. She's like, you're the best one in class. And I'm like, how? And she's like, I don't know. This. <laughs> she's like, there's something about you. You're just really good and you're interesting. And this is like when these divine interventions come in. Yeah. And she's like... She's like, go to L.A. And I'm like, what do you oh, mean? Oh, wow. She's told you to go to L.A. Yeah, like, because I've never had this. And then I read about it. And then it happened to me. And it was like the only time. And she's like, go to L.A. And I said, why? And she goes, it's, it's where you need to be. It's meant for you. Wow. And I said, 
what do I do? And she goes, you'll figure it out. (laughs) She goes, go. And I go, but, and where do I, and she goes, just go. And I go, and she goes, go. She, She goes, I go, why aren't you in LA? She goes, it's not my journey, Jamie. It's not my journey. And this was an amazing actress, fucking hardwood, like walk the boards off Broadway, off fucking Akron, whatever, like these small theater, like she did these scenes from the Days and Wines and Roses. I couldn't tell when she was acting or not. I mean, she was so incredible and she just, but she was almost put here as like this prophet, right? Yeah. And she's like, just fucking go. You will do it. And and I, and, and I always tell people to do it in this business you need. For me, all I needed was just a teeny bit of encouragement, yeah. a teeny bit more of positive feedback, and a lot of delusion. <laughs> yeah. It was 80 delusion, <laughs> 10 and 10 for the yeah. other two. And so at that moment, I'm ready to go. And I'm like, I got to try it. I don't know what to fucking do. My friend's mom is a local actress, did commercials with like Bill Berg, Bill Berge, remember him from the Eagles? Oh, yeah. Jiffy Lube did local, like the local pizza shop. And she had a line, the local casting, in a movie that was coming to town. And she's like, I think I can get you to the work as an extra. And I'm like, how do I do it? She's like, come here, show up, do this, bring these clothes, and fucking don't say anything and just say yes to everything. And I go, and I show up, and they're like, you know, you have this, you have this vest, boom, you have a 50s wardrobe, yes, yes. Will you get your haircut? Yes. We worked 15 hours? Yes. Okay, can you be here tomorrow at 8 a.m.? Yes. You got your hire, boom. And I got hired to be three days as an extra in a movie. Wait, what movie? Was this clean sober or different? No. This is- and that next day I show up and there's something called craft service. <laughs> and I'm sitting there and I'm getting like a carrot. And I'm allowed to get it. And someone reaches <laughs> for a carrot and I look up and dips it in hummus and it's Robin Williams. Wow. And that movie was Dead Poet Society. Wow. And that was my – I'm getting chills right now. That was my first – anything ever in our business and I'm looking at Robin Williams I'm like I don't look, look, look down I'm so bizarre and once I was on that set I just was it was divine intervention like I I was friends with a a gay man an older black woman uh, a young Chinese kid and I'm saying this you know I know it's 2019 and I can't dis- describe other people but what I'm trying to tell you is all race I was out of my suburban cocoon and I was mm-hmm. with all different races, sexual orientations, and we all wanted the same thing, to be an actor, to be this, whatever this was. We were all digging it. We were all vibing. And the scenes had all types of people in it. And I was like, fuck, this is, and that's when it was it. My life changed on that day in 1989. 89. And then from there, when you, when you, that's did you, did you drive to LA? Was it one of those like old stories of like, you got the hoopty, you nah, drove country? I, I flew, I flew out. You, you flew. I flew. So the story that, that I found the most fascinating, and you, if you remember this, Jamie, I actually wrote an adaptation of your book. I do, and I have it. I should you look at it, it again. Yeah. It um, was good. I, it should be a series. It should be for sure. It could, it's, I always call it Entourage. Entourage. It's because I love Entourage, and it's hard for me to watch Entourage because it's so good and it's so real. Even when I was on it, I loved it, and I knew those stories. And I'm like, oh my god, this is like so fucking good. I, Entourage is so good, but they left out so much stuff. Even more, I'm I like love, the underbelly. Oh yeah, but it's so fucking good. Like 
Entourage is so good that I couldn't watch it sometimes because I was painful. I wasn't living that life, but I knew that life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what sure. I'm saying? Of course, yeah. But it's it's Entourage is incredible. But yeah. this was like the opposite of that. This is like all the things that you get to before you get the Entourage. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So one of the stories I love the best was you were working at a toner company or a sales company where you sold toner. Yes. And from what I remember- Toner like, is the copy you use in the machine. <laughs> yeah. Which, I mean, back at, particularly in early, t- that was like gold. Toner was like everything. Like Early man. 90s. Yeah. So selling toner was the shit. And you said that you were you became like one of the top salesmen of toner in your company. Number right? getters. Number getter. Mm-hmm. And you would you would sell toner as different characters. Mm-hmm. And it started to become this thing in the office where people would like crowd around you and say, watch Jamie make the sale. And you'd do like, what, like, what characters would you do when you'd sell the toner? Well, like, again, it was an office. It's right here on Hollywood Boulevard. It's La Brea. It's right by the Seventh Vale. And literally, like, <laughs> I saw, like, early, like, low-rent porn stars, like, that, you know, would, like, go on camera and, like, do something for, like, 200 bucks, like, low-rent. I would see the rockers. This is when early 90s hair bands were still there. I would see, you know, people that were immigrants that were fighting and a lot of struggling actors and comedians. And we would call in and we would say... Hey, this is so and so calling from your toner place, and we would lie. We need to get the copy number machine for the toner, so you know what the scam was, right? So they would say it says CP nine hundred six, so that would be like a cannon. Our boss knew what it was, and he would call back, and he would try to upsell them a better <laughs> toner. And so it was like they we were acting like we were their guy, but we weren't. And then it was up to them to get the sale. Yeah, And so if I was calling like Texas and I'm finding my voice as a comic and I'm doing open mics every night and, you know, trying to go to acting fucking auditions forever backstage. And if I'm calling Texas, I wasn't getting anywhere. So I'm like, hey, man, what you up to? Hey, uh, it's Earl down there at the copy shop. You know, I'll do that. Uh, hey, you doing fucking, you know, this is Tony. How you, how you doing? How you doing? Are you fucking? What are you doing? <laughs> I mean, whatever. I would just get in the character. I would whoever got on that phone. If they were excitable, I was excitable. <laughs> I would just mirror, as yeah. you know, mirroring, you know. It was like the Meisner technique. Yes, yeah. <laughs> mirroring someone makes them feel comfortable. So whatever they were doing, I would do it. I had all my lists. I know exactly how to sell. You get two objections. The third one, you hang up. Yeah. Because you're never going to get past that person. And you just it's a volume game. <laughs> I could teach selling to anyone. <laughs> just hang up, keep going, keep going, meet your fucking quota, right? Yeah. And then I got really good at it. I don't know if I was a top, but I was up there. And I got really good at doing voices. And I got really good at making, you know, 75 cents a number. And then I started looking at the product and I'm like, I don't, why don't I sell myself like this? Yeah. People don't understand. This is 1993. Where talking about yourself positively was considered, you know, fucking, I don't know, fucking <laughs> schizophrenia. Like you didn't. <laughs> Big yourself up. Yeah. You fucking let other people do the talking. You let you showed them the reviews of your show or whatever. Now now on today it's like, look at what I did. It's fucking yeah. nuts. You know this. So I started calling around as my as a character, and that's how the Jamie Kennedy career yeah. started. So the character was It's hard to do here. It was a character named Marty Power. Marty fucking power. Yeah, yeah. So Marty Power was an old agent. It was, I can't. I have to really get it in, but I. Guess. It was like a, like an old Jewish guy yeah. from Florida type of an thing. Old right? Jewish guy. He's been in the business for like fifty <laughs> years, 
and he's retiring. He's going to the Keys, and this last thing is the last kid he believes in is this kid. So he wants to set the kid up before he goes. Yeah, it was like a swan song. He was everybody's, like, grandfather. He was everybody's person that they knew in Hollywood. His name was Power, so I thought that would subliminally think people he was powerful. It rhymed with Bauer, which Marty Bauer at the time was the head of a huge company called Bauer Benedict, which eventually became UTA. And I called, I had a whole sales pitch. You have to do something as something. You have to compare two things when you sell. So he guys said, this kid's a cross between uh, Robbie Benson and James Woods, which is, you know, because which at not the time bad, was a, a good comparison. combo, not right? A <laughs> not a bad comparison. And uh, Robbie Benson at Ice Castles. James Woods was coming off JFK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, that's what you do. You would say, this toner's a mix between a cannon and a whatever. <laughs> so... That's how I started, and I got pretty much in every fucking room in town. Which is insane. And also, you were living in someone's garage at the time, right? I was living in my buddy Dave Garrett's. I'm going to tell too much here. I was living with my buddy. So how how this is now, Dave Garrett was living with a, a woman who was his professor, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, at the time at UCLA, and I think they were hanging around, <laughs> and she was his professor, and uh, they were uh, hanging out, mm-hmm. and then she had, she he had a room in her house, and she had a garage, and so she, 400 bucks a month, I paid, and I rented out the garage, Yeah, and it was like Beverly Hills adjacent, and I was... There and I, that's where I got my first holding deal. That's where I got my first agent. That's where I got my first movie role. All out of that fucking garage. And you were, you were making, you had like a makeshift office, your Marty Power. I went, once I realized I could sell. Yeah. I went, and by the way, as a side note, if I wasn't, if I didn't have these mommy issues, if I didn't have this desire to be loved, if I didn't have this ability to make people laugh, you just saw me. I mean, people love when I go on stage, they do love it. And I do love their feedback. I would, murder this fucking town <laughs> I would fucking outsell any motherfucker and you can keep that because I know the angst I know what you have to do you have to be fucking relentless you have to fucking bite into the neck and you do not let go and there's like five guys in town that do it or women that I'm not going to name the names that do it and the rest stink you know this <laughs> yes. you have to be a fucking animal and I wish I didn't want to perform sometimes because I got so good at selling and the I I went to St. Anthony's, which is a um, a secondhand charity. It was like St. Anthony's Goodwill or something like that. It was on the west side, and I bought – dude, I wrote a goal list. I was listening to a ton of Tony Robbins, and it was like I got an answering machine, and I got a telephone, and that was like 20 bucks, and that was it. That's all I had, and I was broke as fuck, and I said and then I'm saving up next week to get a table. And then the week after that, after a chair. And then the week after that, a futon. So it took me like three months to get a makeshift office. And I got it all from St. Anthony's Goodwill. Shout out. And I built and I made a makeshift office and I had a fucking schedule. And every day I'd wake up and make a smoothie and fucking just start dialing for dollars. Yeah. And all my early roles I got with that is a combination of me and then when I got an agent and then me stealing the breakdowns. 
and then calling my agent going, hey, I heard, because you couldn't call your agent, tell them how to do their job. Yeah. No way. They're <laughs> agents. And then slightly suggesting it. And some of my earliest jobs I had gotten because of my light suggesting. Now, I kind of want to get back to the Marty. Like, when did Marty, first of all, when did Marty help you get your first break? And when did Marty die? Like, how did you get rid of Marty as your career started taking off? So... Because my understanding, and I might be wrong, is that there was a point where you started blowing up. And I don't know what the first thing that kind of got you. It was before R&J, I'm sure, that you, you, oh, yeah, you started that. blowing up. That, um, but you were like, wow, Marty's name is bandied about town. Um, he, can't, <laughs> he can't be alive. So Marty has to have a yeah, funeral. Yeah, Marty, Marty <laughs> got popular. So yeah, we had to kill him off. Um, so, so... Listen, I just did a great show tonight, and I, the guy's a comic who booked the show, and it's like I feel for all these guys that put their shows together because I know what it's like. But you can wait around and try to get spots forever, or you can do your own show, as you know. Yeah. So I got eight comics together. I put together a killer show at a club called Igby's. Oh, Igby's. Remember that? I heard about that, yeah. Back in the day on the west side, it was across from Moon's Venus, which is a great strip club over there. <laughs> And it was like they you could do a deal there. Like if you were unknown, they would be like, yo, I'm – and I fucking had flyers and all this shit. And you hustle every day. The flyers. Yeah. Print a thousand flyers. And Marty's calling people too. Like you got to come see this. Marty's thing. calling people. And so the first success that Marty had in early 94, because I started doing this early 94, prepared it in 93, was he – Got to see the kid live. Yeah. So I got, I, we packed it out with me and all the comics, and it was essentially a bringer show. And we taped a set, and we did good. And it was a couple like casting associates, associates that came, and they started bringing me in. Yeah. It was a, I got a tape. It's all momentum, dude. Everything is about momentum. And Somebody from the Huntington Beach Weekly, I have the paper somewhere, did a story and it said, the elf who would be king. So at that time, I looked, my ears were bigger now because I was a little skinnier. I was really fucking skinny and I was drinking a lot of juice. I didn't eat much meat and I looked like an elf. And they put me on like the cover of the entertainment section of like the Huntington Beach Weekly Flyer. I got into this casting associate's office for a show called California Dreams, which was the spinoff of Saved by the Bell. Okay. And then there was another show called Running the Halls, which, you know, Phil uh, Stu was on and, you know, Hang Time. There was all this ca- these early Saturday morning shows, which people probably watch who were watching this know what I'm talking about. I was on the second one and I, I was going in for a guest spot and – I go in and I do my audition. She's like, great. That was great. And I'm walking out and I have like my bag and I have nothing except my bag. It was like a fucking like plastic Trader Joe's bag. (laughs) And I just turn around and I go, look at this. And I showed it to the casting director. And she goes, is that you? And I go, yeah. And I go, look, I'm broke. I'm destitute. But I know I'm good. I go, 
I don't know how many people are going to see for this. It's Friday afternoon. You could get this done very quickly. You'd be doing me a break. I'd be indebted to you forever. It's two lines. It's one that you know I'm going places. And she was like, okay. <laughs> I walked wow. out. And that night I had a message on my answering service. Report Monday morning. And I was like, <sighs> and that was, dude, I, today it gives me goosebumps. Like yeah. you have to have these moments. Like that was a huge moment in my career. It's like, just come on, it's two fucking lines. I'm great. And I don't care if I was desperate. Don't listen to it. Don't listen to it. I was desperate. I let her know. And for some moment, I reached a humanity. Bam. That led to multiple episodes. But Marty, I still didn't have reps. But Marty was your rep. Marty's my rep. Marty called another lady. The lady said, I'm going to manage you. She started managing me. She told, I told her I was Marty. She thought I was a genius for it. Oh, you told, you, you, yeah, you were yeah, the Yeah, once truth. I got in, because I, I had to break it to do it. I had all these meetings set up with as Marty. She like said, I'll take over from here. And then I got three things. I got an, an audition for SNL, flown to New York. I didn't know you did that. Yeah, wow. dude. I did a pilot for MTV and I had a holding deal with Universal all within six months. Wow. And the holding deal went away. I didn't get SNL and my pilot went away. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, what the fuck? And Marty is retired. <laughs> Marty retired. Well, he didn't die at this point? He was. He never died. <laughs> oh, he didn't die. And uh, But then my manager, along with Marty, helped me get with APA. And then and I got that spot. And then once I got that spot, I got cast in another spot, in another spot. And then, you know, boom. And people start talking. Boom. And then I started getting TV guest spots. And then that led to like movie, like we'll audition you for a movie because you're yeah. like a young guy. And that's how I started getting movies. But I had to, it was like I got on the list of like, he's a funny TV actor. Yeah. You should see him, which people don't understand nowadays. But he was a funny TV guest spot actor. Yeah. Which people don't, you know what I mean? That was like. That was a thing back then. Yeah. It wasn't a movie actor. It was a commercial actor. Was, people don't understand it now. No. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, I mean, there's a lot more details, but that was the rough of it. Because I always found the Marty story, I'd never heard any, I've, I think I've, since then I've heard stories similar to that about people kind of pretending they're a manager or an agent or whatever. But the fact that you pretended that and were a character and spoke to the same people both as yourself and as Marty and conv and convinced them yeah. is so goddamn impressive. Thank you. And then when you do a thing, I, maybe this was just in the, in the thing, but you'd have like, you'd push a button to make it seem like phones are ringing. Oh, oh I, had a, I had a little <laughs> phone. A little phone keychain, and I would push that, and I go, and I go, gotta go. I can't do it. I gotta go. Lines are blowing up. I would go, Marge, hold him, please. Like, I had a whole fake office going, hitting things. Dude, then I would put a delivery shirt on and deliver this shit. So I would call Rick Messina's office. Yeah. Messina Baker. You know who that is? casting director, yeah. No, Rick Messina at the time was one of the biggest managers, if not the okay, biggest. Yeah, he yeah. was like, it was Bernie Brillstein and him. Okay, got it, got it. And he had Tim Allen. And yeah, he had oh, home course, improvement. And he was the guy that like, I think one of the first guys that like how Mike Ovitz basically made the packaging deal from the agencies, which gets 3%. If you represent three parts of a show, right? The writer... The director and the star, I think that's what it is. It's three pieces. He was like, oh, if you represent the star, then the managing company can get a little piece at the back and they don't take the fees from the client. 
So the client feels like, yo, I'm not paying 10%. It's coming out of the show. It's not coming out of your ass. And if you don't own any of it, you're like, fine. Now, if you own a little bit, it might cut into you. But then they get a little piece of that sell. And like home improvements sold for like when APA signed me, they go, we're going to get you your own show. And I go, really? I go, I go, I really want to do movies. And they go, Home Improvement just sold for $860 million. TV's a good start. <laughs> and, and it was like, wow. I mean, literally. And I know, like, one of the people involved. Like, like, somebody told me, like, the first check they saw, like, one of the creators of Home Improvement, somebody that was, like, either their assistant or something, saw a check on the desk for $57 million. Jesus. Like, <laughs> like, that's a real thing of, like, and that's what they were doing with those TV. And you have to understand, so when I, the 80s brought the 90s what's the next and i was the early i was the youngest guy on the circuit yeah you know i was the youngest person and it was like oh he was like cute and funny and i could do voices and like what's this guy gonna do you know and like paulie was already established and you know and like i was in la i mean you had obviously jay moore and different guys like that and jim brewer in new york so they had their own and they were on snl but so out here i had a nice little thing going yeah and uh once it didn't happen for SNL, I was really um, that must have been yeah. I and I didn't get my pilot. My pilot was so good for MTV. It was called Jamie on the Loose. Oh, so you were the title of the pilot. I was too. the title of it, and what it was was me, Lisa Berger. To this day, hi Lisa, I love you. Who was the president of E? I don't know where she's at now. She's president somewhere. She was amazing. One of the shepherds of my career, and she believed in me and said, "Do we have to wait for a plane?" And she no, you can't said. She let me – so what I did was I did my – what I'm good at, playing characters and personas and breaking into things. So I went to a the Westwood Open, which is a tennis tournament with Andre Agassi, and I had to get in there and get to Andre to get him to sign my – Blue Lagoon poster, get Brooke Shields to sign my Blue Lagoon poster. That was the quest. So back in the day, you could like break the law for a TV show for MTV. It was like totally incredible. Yes. Let's do it. Yeah. But, and it was basically like I would do different characters to talk my way in and bullshit. So it was like an early version of the Jamie Kang experiment. It's yeah. kind of like what Skyler did. He had Khan. Khan, yeah. And it was like that. And I would do characters and but you would do prosthetic shit. It wasn't as involved not, as James not, Kennedy. No, it wasn't as involved as that. It was like just a tester pilot. But I would voices, and no one knew me. Yeah. And so that's and I got all the way into the press conference, and I have the video of me asking Andre, and then I oh, got the great. poster signed, and yeah. it was like, and it didn't go. The pilot didn't go, but um, it was a great piece of tape and i got the tape and then that tape was my calling card for along with these guest spots yeah now what happened for did jay mechanic happen jane came experiment happened for rnj or what was the first what was your first big break i, for, I forgot for, I, uh, my first big break was van sneakers and that was like in the summer of 94 and i, I equate a lot of it to comedy clubs and i equate a lot of my success to you did like a commercial campaign for it yeah. yeah, and it was somebody – it was another comedian, and she said, hey, I work in an ad agency during the day. We're looking for five people to come down and pay 100 bucks each and do a tester for El Pollo Loco. I did the tester. The campaign did not go, but El Pollo Loco liked it, and the same company had a campaign for Vans, and they said, do you want to do this thing for the Vans, and we'll pay you 500 Well, 500 is a lot now. Yeah. And so – I was like, fuck yeah. So I did it. And they showed it to the guy from Vans. And the guy from Vans is like, oh, he's like a cool dude. Probably made a couple hundred million. Still chills in OC. He's from Huntington. And he's like a skater. And yeah. he's like, 
He's not corporate. So they go, this is the idea what the commercial is and blah, blah, blah. And this is the type of guy we would use. And he goes, this type of guy. And he goes, what about this guy? And he goes, well, that's just like the tester. And they go, why can't he be the guy? And he goes, but he has no credits. He goes, I like that guy. And so that guy from Vans made my first, and I did four commercials. Four national commercials for Vans. And they were on MTV every fucking hour. Yeah, yeah. And all the fuck over. And this was in 94. My hair was long. Eddie Vedder was fucking killing it. My hair was longer <laughs> than this. And I was total grunge. Like, what's up, bro? I was like, I, did, I had a whole bro phase. Like, <laughs> Speed was there. Keanu was before Keanu cut his hair for Speed, but it was all that. Yeah, dude. And it was that guy. So I was that guy. And that got me, boom, a lot of auditions in the movies. I didn't, I had a lot of movie love for a while. Jimmy Kenny Experiment wasn't until 01. That's right. And that was five years after my first movie role or six years. And that was only because I was avoiding doing anything funny, right? So I was avoiding anything funny. And I didn't, because I, I, I saw that funny wasn't respected the way it should be. Interesting. Yeah. And I say that. And here's what I thought. You'll dig this because you, you're cerebral and you're funny and you get it. You'll get it. You'll really get it because you're a professor with this shit. Is that it's like I came up in the clubs, right? And auditions. And I mean, I'm going to the comedy store in 1991 on Potluck. And I was like doing sets at three in the morning for our beyond standing room only and bombing my face off <laughs> and then like james stevens the third i remember go him, yeah. on and just do 10 impressions and sing and just murder and cedric the entertainer and i'm like 21 and i'm just trying to get two minutes and i'm like i'm like but it was people like james stevens the third who were like man keep doing it you know just a just a tiny amount of love, just so sweet to me, but you know, didn't know me, was just like knew that I was like trying to come up, and I would see insane talent, you know, just fucking people just murder, and I'm like, this is I'm never gonna be able to do this, and then I would do movies, and. I would see what people I would see, do movie auditions and I would do TV auditions and I would see what people thought was funny. And when you got into a movie, how funny people thought I was. And I thought, I'm funny, but I'm not funny like I know I can be funny. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm like, I'm I'm saying your words, which are good, but they're not like from my brain. Mm -hmm. So I'm gonna bring you my take of what I think you want. And once I did enough of those, and there's like there's like stand-up comedy funny, and there's movie actor funny. There's two, two different types of funny. I'm not saying they can't work, but there's a difference between being funny in a movie and playing a comedy club at three in the morning and fucking off of Sunset Boulevard and having to fucking kill it. Yeah. You know this. Yeah. And, you know, my heart's going to always go out to the fucking comic because that's the hardest fucking thing, right? And so... Once I did that, I'm like, I have so much more. And I didn't want to be funny because I didn't want to get typecast. Mm -hmm. But I had a great fan in Jordan Levin at the WB, and he had moved up the ranks. And he was so awesome to me, and he's a great dude. He's another person that really gave me – there's like five people in my career that made me. He's one of them. And he's like, do this tape because I was like, I want to do a show like this. And 
He liked the idea, and, and it was at that chill. point, nothing else was kind of like that, right? I mean, well, no, this was long before it, punked or anything. And, yeah, yeah. And I was doing a lot of movies, and it was, and I loved it. But I was always, I was just, I was a sidekick role, and I didn't mind being the sidekick role. I was a sidekick role to a lot of big stars, and I loved it. But I felt I could do more. And the next step was to get a Bob Simons movie, mm-hmm. you know. And Bob Simons was made a lot of comic stars, you know, Adam Sandler. Um, Dave Chappelle did Half Baked and a lot of people. So I was developing a movie with Bob Simons that was like your breakout and I could never get it going. I was so close to getting it going and it never happened. And I was just like, fuck, how am I going to be this comedy brand? And, you know, my agents were like, you got to try TV, just do TV. So I did a couple pilots and they never went anywhere. And then I had this idea and like my agent thought it was great. Jordan thought it was great. I pitched it around. No one got it. He got it. And it was a combination of SNL and Candid Camera, which was like me doing characters, which I love from SNL, and Candid Camera, which is doing it in front of real people. And I thought, I'm going to show people what a great actor I am Mm -hmm. by making real people believe that I'm real. And it was like subversive. And we did a demo, and they played it at the upfronts, and it killed. And They played the demo at the upfronts. They played the demo at the upfronts as like a interstitial yeah it wasn't a show it was like here's an interstitial while you're waiting for new things wow and here's a word from our sponsors and it was me joking on the sponsors and different sponsors came in and it was like telling them what we wanted and all these ad buyers had to be nice to me because i was the head of the networks kid. Were you, what was your character when you i was this? the head of the networks kid so you're like a punk kid. You yeah, and right? I was telling Coca-Cola how they should make Coke better. I was telling Xerox how they could fix, you know, make it sexier. You know, have somebody smoke a joint as there's, you know, hitting the Xerox. I mean, you gotta hit us young kids. We're Gen, we're Gen X. You know, this is Gen X time. <laughs> and I was telling all these, and they were, it was perfect. It was in New York, and it was all the advertisers, and I was just taking the piss out of them and they were like and i'm like that's what you gotta do bro and i was so they were landlocked because they thought i was the head of the network so i was the guy wait this was live this was in the tape no no no. this was a tape okay this is a tape yeah so i was the head of the network's kid who wanted to get in the business this was a bullshit meeting for them just to take it and i was pitching them these crazy ideas and i was really adamant that they should do it and they were like so shocked at my ideas but it was the guy that they needed to fucking get the programming from to sell to their fuck so and it's just destroyed. It do you was such remember an any of the ideas? Do you remember any of the ideas you did? Not really, but okay. I do have the tape. Yeah. I just remember it was like, I think Coca-Cola was one of them. And I was just like, listen, man, you got to put like a little ecstasy in there. I mean, we just <laughs> were tired. Caffeine's not enough. And it was like, like, and it just destroyed at the upfronts. Yeah. Been. And it was, Jordan's like, dude, 13, let's go. We'll figure it out. And that's yeah. when it was, that's when Hollywood was amazing. <laughs> he would come yeah. up to you at the after party. You fucking killed my man. Fucking 13. Woo! Let's figure it the fuck out. Can you do it for six hundred thousand an app? Yes. Yes. You can do the whole season for seven million. I think so. All right, let's figure it the fuck out. Yeah. That's yeah, when yeah. Hollywood was fucking cool. And now like, you got a fucking um, two thousand dollars for a demo, and here it's get the fuck out of here. That's and basically, why my one, generation's annoyed. One person could make that call too. Like Jordan could just make that call and make it happen. He too. could make the call and says, "This is what I want to do." He has to get you know the board, but yeah. he, he, it was great. He was. He was, he was talent friendly, man. Yeah. He loved to laugh. It's like when I, you got to watch the kid stays in the picture. Fucking, fucking, you know, Robert Evans was like Charlie Blumhorn loved movies. You know, he bought Paramount. He loved movies. He was artist friendly. I mean, we need that. We need yeah. that on the other side. And it's like, I always say about this business, man, 
why this business is so fucked up is because you got risk takers pitching to the risk averse. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, and it's the worst combo ever because it's like it's they don't want to lose their fucking job, and all we want to do is win. We're Pete Carroll on the second yard line. We're gonna fucking think you're not gonna see the pass. Yeah, right. But that's our business. And why do you think it changed? Like, do you think there was a moment or something that happened in the business that changed? Do you think it was just like corporate interest changed? Or, dude, I love this rabbit hole we're going down. Let me try to tell you in a simple twix. I had this conversation today, and I'm going to say something cerebrally, and you'll get it because you're quick. The Beatles. You would (laughs) just stay stay where I'm going with that. Yeah, that was probably a top ten. I don't want to just say cultural moment. I want to say just like moment in the last hundred years of anything. Yeah, like the invention of the iPhone. And the Beatles would be like in the top ten, right? Yeah. Like, so when you had the Beatles, only place to watch them was Ed Sullivan. They say that was a top moment in history, top moment in entertainment, whatever. Ed Sullivan was the only person. So you had one fucking flow of water going through one hose, mm-hmm. right? What happened is the fractioning of our business where – dude, I was just talking about – that this very recently with a very big star who was offered a lot of money for stuff in the 90s that they would not do and today said I would love to do that because in the 90s you didn't do that that's the last generation of you didn't fucking mix your commerce with your art Hmm. and now because you can do YouTube and Snapchat and Vimeo and Netflix if you do a podcast at 3 o'clock and a guest spot at 6 o'clock if you don't do something by 8 o'clock you're irrelevant I mean (laughs) right it's it changed with distribution. Yeah. So the bigs don't have the pipes. I mean, Disney is the biggest. They have the pipes. But everybody else is vying for your attention. So the new cur- – the currency in my day and your half and half was talent. The currency now, yeah, it's nice to have talent. But really it's can you get attention? Yeah. I think that's the newest currency. And some young comic told me this recently, and he fucking schooled me. He's like, dude, he's like, exclusivity's dead, my man. He's like, be everywhere. They'll forget about your ass if you're not in their face. Wow. And that was a fucking good-ass piece of advice. Do you Mm -hmm. agree with that? Mm Vonnie said that. What's up, Vaughn? Yeah. I mean, do you agree? I mean, I just had a sort of come-to-Jesus moment today where where Trisha Paytas wanted me to say, hey. I think I helped discover. Yeah. Who's like, hey, will you do like a – be handcuffed to me. You're my crush. Be handcuffed to me for 24 hours thing on YouTube. And like the weird, <laughs> like blue collar, like theater actor, like, no, I'm a theater. I can't like, yeah. but that part of me is like, I gotta say fucking yes to being handcuffed to Trisha Paytas for 24 hours for her 8 million YouTube subscribers. Yes. And watch my life. Whatever well, happens with it, it. It's like this. It's like, it's like, look, it's like, there's attention. There's a type of attention you want to get. <laughs> there is new type of attention. It just changed because oh, – let me try to say this and then I'll shut up and I'll hear you. But Hollywood was something so special and you would look up to it and it was fucking revered, dude. I was raised on Jack Nicholson, dude. Yeah. I was raised on fucking Bobby D, Al Pacino, right? Fucking Brando, Sidney Poitier. I was fucking raised – on fucking Eddie Murphy, you know, all of these guys. And it was like, how could you, I don't, it, they were so good and such bigger than life character people that you could never not only be like them, 
how do you even begin to try to do what they do? Like, they're gods. Yeah. They're fucking gods. Okay. And the newest version of what is born in whatever year it started believes because they can broadcast themselves through their phone to you that they're gods. Yeah. And so either they're right and they are fucking gods, which some of them are, or they're wildly delusional and I'm right. But it doesn't matter. Yeah. Because they're winning and some of the old gods are still gods and some of the old gods you forgot about. And some of the new gods people think are stupid. (laughs) But at the end of the day, that's what it is. To me, I had such reverence. And you know, dude. I mean, you fucking know. Dude. I don't want to fucking say any of this shit, but when you have Instagram and I see somebody that says uh, what they do and it says comedian, <laughs> it's it's hurtful to the art form of what I feel. I don't even I don't even say I'm a comedian. I never put that there. I don't yeah. think you put that on yours. It's like I, I never told people I was a comedian until they saw me. I, I never told people I was an actor. I said, I'm trying to be. People do one set and they say they're a comedian. And that's like, I just feel it's such a disrespect to the art because it's so fucking hard. Yeah. To the people that are gods yeah. in there. And there's a lot of gods that are like. So anyway, that was my rant. No, I hear you, man. And listen, one of the things I want to I want to do a quick like left turn here. You've always been, I hate saying this this adjective because when I hear it said to me, I want to punch the person in the face, but you are an underrated actor, man. You are Thank such you. a great fucking actor. And your your monologue in the first screen is one of the best, like, funny comic monologues ever in film. It's, it's To this day, it holds up when you're explaining you. the fucking roles. And by the way, you just you just had your scream anniversary. Yeah, like, we just had what, a big what, what was that? You had the big convention. There's right? a great convention called Horror Hound, and these conventions are huge. Did you go to a lot of them? I'm starting to do them again. I stopped for a little while, but they're bigger than ever. Yeah, it used to be where like careers would go to die, and you'd live from con to con. But now, <laughs> it's you, everybody. You see somebody from I Spit on Your Grave 15 to <laughs> Jason Momoa. Jason Momoa just did one in London. So yeah. it's it's. It's everybody. Were you surprised how big the crowd was for Scream at this last convention? I mean, Scream is Scream is an iconic movie in a way that you probably wouldn't have anticipated when you did it at all, of course. Yeah, um, Even when it came out, you probably wouldn't expect that now the movie would still be as iconic as it is. Dude, I had a great conversation with Nev about this and, and Matthew, and, and I was saying that Scream has transcended horror. It's just considered a great movie now. Yeah. And we agreed. We were like, it has. And I, in a weird way, I think Scream's getting bigger. Yeah. Who is that? Someone just screamed. Um, It's like, so, lady. <laughs> is that your neighbor? Mia, Mia fucking Mars. There she is. Hi, I live next door. <laughs> she, she know you're in the middle of a broadcast? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's um, part of the charm of the podcast. <laughs> Anyway, um, we had no idea. I had no idea. I knew it was something special. Yeah. But it's now, it's not just a, a horror staple, it's a staple of pop culture. Yeah. You see 
Absolutely. Ghostface. Oh, every Halloween you're going to see Ghostface. And it's it's yeah. So these these conventions are only getting bigger because people go to them to sell. They people want to be with what they like, like minded individuals. Whether you love you know theater and off you know Wisconsin Broadway, or whatever you did that play, or you like just comedy. You know, fans are finding what they like, whether it's comedy, punk rock, EDM. So horror fans are a huge group and they come to these things. So yes, they're big. Yeah. Now, uh, James Ken experiment, which I think a lot of people probably don't know about, um, because it was sort of right before everything got viral. Right. Yes. Um, I'm premature in all the wrong ways. <laughs> can people still like, can people still find that? Cause I thought again, not to be all about like sucking your balls, but like it was so fucking great. There are some sketches in James Can Experiment that to this day I think are some of the best prank sketches I've ever seen. I know, and I think they're better than I don't even think they're the word prank. Can't yeah. they just be sketches? Like the, like the Bob Saget house? Bob Saget was uh, just Google that one. That's incredible. That's yeah. one of the greatest. Um YouTube. YouTube. YouTube, you can see a lot of them. Um I want to get them on TV. I want to get the reruns up, but you can see them on YouTube. But it was, it was fucking like two years early. Yeah, because then everything went viral when we got canceled. Yeah, because now the, the sketches were individually going viral in their own in their own court. Well, like there was a deal to buy all the reruns for Comedy Central. They really wanted them in like '04, and. ABC Family wanted them, and ABC Family, the stipulation, which no one, this is like, hurts my soul. That wasn't, I wasn't involved in any negotiations or told. ABC Family would have bought all episodes produced. Comedy Central said, we just want your library that you have now. And they were adamant on getting future episodes. And they were like, we don't know if we want them. So they went with the ABC Family. And ABC Family ran them for like one cycle, and then they, just said we're rebranding everything and they yeah. became freeform, which is yes. like young girls. And Comedy Central said, you know how we make something big? We rerun the fuck out of it. Yeah. <laughs> you know the rest is history. Yeah. So um now I want to get a little bit into our relationship. Mm-hmm. So we we toured for I guess three and a half, four years, something like that. Some USO, yep. Iraq, yep. some of the, some of the cool South Africa, yep. Philippines. Uh, Philippines. Yes. Some of my favorite moments. And uh, so thank you for that. I I'm also taking you around the world, bro. Take me around the world. And also, man, you know what? And I, I don't know if I ever told you this, but I also wanted to make amends to you, man. Are we doing this right now? I want to make oh, amends to you. Oh, God. Man. Please don't mention any names or no anything. No names in my amends. Oh, no names. But, you know, because it's a more general thing. It's not, it's okay. not that specific. The amends I want to make is that as a feature for you, mm-hmm. it was a very spoiled life. Okay. And I was getting paid well by clubs, and you paid me a little extra. And as a matter of fact, you gave me credit on your comedy special. I've written for other comics since then mm-hmm. who were like, here's the money. You get no credit. So mm-hmm. it's incredible and generous of you. So well, you did. I did not – until I became a headliner in my own right, did I realize the pressure of being a headliner. And I realized like how you need your feature to be in lockstep. And because I had my own little attitude and point of view, whatever it is, I was not in lockstep with you and i didn't think i was being rebellious or like a piece of shit but i was definitely pushing back in a way that i never needed to and i didn't realize that until i started opening for other people and became my own headliner so i want to apologize to you for the fact that you gave me a fucking amazing life on the road around the world 
opportunities, once in lifetime opportunities. And I appre- I want to tell you how much I appreciate it, number one, because I probably never told you that. Mm-hmm. So thank you for that. Okay. And number two, and I apologize for not being grateful enough at the time. And I apologize for being a pain in the ass as an opener. Wow. And that is part of the reason why I wanted you to come on my podcast, man. Wow. This is this is big. What made you have this realization? No, I've had you know, well the I've people had can't it see it, but he's having a moment right now. My eyes may be a little bit watery. Or they wow. may not be. I could t- <laughs> wait. Well, I gotta tell them something funny and then I'm going okay, back yeah. to what here's here's when I started here's when I fucking <laughs> there was, there, I don't know how much I want to say. Yeah, say it, say but it. I <laughs> Jesus. I don't know if I can tell the story. You can tell the story, man. Tell here's story. like I wanted to say this. Just like one time, this is when I when I started realizing you were gonna be you were being a fucking nightmare, and you were being <laughs> a diva. So people really don't, people really know this about you. I mean, like Bill's like an amazing impressionist, great comic, super smart brain, like too smart for comedy in the sense of like he could be an engineer. You could be multiple things. I mean, people have to know that about you. The comedy, you have to be smart in a lot of ways, but I don't know any comics that are out there like doing Pythagoras' theorem, which you could do. <laughs> and you can dance, you have all that stuff. And you're a UF, you're kind of UFC before UFC. I mean, you were MMA, right? No, I was just Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. But yeah. you could do it. Yeah. And so oh, I used to take you to Miami a lot. Yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> And uh, this is pre-Drake, and it was – I know it's great with Drake, but it's – well, there's a lot of Miami stories. I used to take this motherfucker to Miami. And Miami Club, now I got to go back because it's redone, I heard, or whatever. But it's it was amazing back in the day, but it was gangster. Mm-hmm. It was like, you know, fuck, you come out, and there'd be drug dealers. But you might see, you know, you might see Shaq there. You might see everybody. It was the party, this club. It's great. And Miami's great, but I'm always about the fucking money. You know that, and I'm moving. And I'll never forget, I wanted to write with you because I'm like, I got to get my new special ready. And I think I like brought like a little girlfriend I had or something. And like the night before, like Bill ran interference and <laughs> you, you, a lot of interference. You right? ran interference and like, but you took down, you took down, it was a. He took down. It was, he was. It was bigger. He's a big kid. Can you say that? Am I gonna get in trouble? She. I remember that. It was real, real pretty. She had. He ran interference, and you weren't mad. About, she wasn't mad that you. You know, she caught your affection, and then I like. Well, you want to tell the exact story that you're talking about? right Well, now? I don't want to put it all on blast. It's 2019. People. I, I. I can tell you what happened when I saw you in there with her, and I just saw her. Fucking, you had a small. Do you remember? You had like this a small, really pretty, stay puff marshmallow woman, just just engulfing you and like, Bill, Bill, just and you were all about it, and it was great. You were just lying down. You had a long night, and she did all the work, and I just looked in and I just died laughing, and I was like, all right, he's living. He ran interference, and you were being engulfed. There was a. 
a rather large human, but sexy, big, you know what I mean? Proportioned in all the right ways. So then, boom, the next day, this dude's a fucking New York rollerblader. And I'm like, great, we're going to write today in New York. It was Miami. It was 95 and beautiful. And everyone's on the fucking Collins Avenue. But that's every fucking day. Yeah. So I go, Bill, let's write. And then you didn't show up or something. And you came back. And you, it was like four hours later. And I'm in my room. And I'm like, where the fuck were you? And you go, that's the beach, man. It's the beach. And I go, yeah, but I was looking for you. Carolyn was looking for you. Like, you were supposed to fucking write with me. We are supposed to write for two fucking hours today. I can test this shit tonight. You go, you go, I know, but it's sunny. It's Miami. Okay? There's a, there's a lot of fucking hot girls out there. Okay? I go, I want a fucking rollerblade. <laughs> I said that. Yes. And I go... <laughs> I don't give a fuck about the fucking hot girls or Miami. I need to fucking write this fucking bit about Starbucks. And you were like, you were like, I'm allowed to fucking skate, okay? I'm not your fucking bitch. Do you remember this? You were in my room hollering at me. And I said, dude, you do what the fuck I say because you're fucking open for me. And that's when like you like ripped your shirt off and you go, Jay! <laughs> I want to fucking kill you. I want to rip your fucking body in two. And you were so mad. And, like, you could physically do it, but I was never scared of you. I'm not saying I could take you or anything, and, but you would never approach me physically. You were like, I want to rip your fucking head off. Fuck you. God. It's my fucking right to skate. I'm not going to be in Miami all the time. New York City, and I'm allowed to fucking skate. I'll kill you. And I go, dude, you got anger at you. And I just poked you, and I would just sit there, and I go, okay. And I go, enjoy fucking skating like that <laughs> don't you remember that and you I almost, you became a human being and you almost exploded by the way they're my roller you know most of my rollerblades right there oh my god two fucking pairs <laughs> so they're hanging up so I was like at this point I'm like this motherfucker is on the bill train which is fine but that's when you gotta let go mm-hmm. of your opener because yeah. there's too much happening that and that's a whole other podcast of how it works and that was the start of the riff, but I, it, but I just remember how angry you were, how muscular you were, how much you wanted to kill me, and how much you never touched me. Like, I can honestly say he never <laughs> abused me. He could, and, but I wasn't scared of him. And I have this thing that's like, I know it's enough celebrity where you can just be intimidating just enough where, like, people won't punch a celebrity in the face. <laughs> oh, my God. And I was like, go for it, dude. Let's go. Uh, I and never you, remember. You don't remember that. But, and you had sex with a beautiful, very beautiful full-bodied creature the night before. <laughs> Can I say that word? <laughs> and you, you were living the dream. I was buying all your meals. And all I wanted was two fucking hours. And if you want to stay in Miami, stay in fucking Miami Monday or Tuesday and rollerblade all you fucking want. Collins Avenue will love your ass. <laughs> So that's then. There's a lot more stories I don't want to go into, but that was a funny one because you were. That's so, and I and, that, and I think a lot of people don't realize that they don't have perspective. And like I always said that about you, like you have the talent to be as big as you want to be, but you do you you are a combative motherfucker. Do you agree with that? I think that I've had my issues with being a little bit of a diva in the past with multiple areas of my you're, life. Yes. He, you're extremely intelligent, right? So you know that you could fucking go into Wharton and fuck with people. 
And you also know you can go on stage and kill. That's a dangerous combo. But then you master in the minors. Listen, man, and this is coming from a broken house, so my glass is shattered all over the place. What I'm saying is you will spend fucking two days on something so minuscule to prove your fucking point. As opposed to you already are so much better than that. And that was why, why I started having issues with you. When you, you needed to be right. You, need, you were like a girlfriend. You needed to be fucking right. And I'm not yeah, yeah. attacking women. You're right. You're right. I just like women. That's who I've been in relationships with. But I feel like I've had that with girlfriends. That makes a lot of sense. There's that, you know, that phrase, either you can be right or you can be liked. And I was definitely would fall inside of like, I want to be right. And it, it's true when I would do theater. Mm-hmm. It's true when I would be working on like film scripts or indie films. I would like, this is... And... You know, I always I've talked about this before because I watch Andre Andre Agassi going calling all the way back to Agassi and your thing. He was at a tennis tournament in DC. I think it was against like who was his big nemesis? Was it Sampras? I think he was think losing, so. and he hit the ball. And this, he was like a favorite. He was a fan favorite. He hit the ball into the net, and he took the tennis racket and he went boom, 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 and he like bent it in half over his foot, and he slowly walked back. Put it on thing, got a new racket, play it, and lost. And he had a second place trophy. And it, and but they all wanted him to win, and so they gave him a speech because he was such a favorite there. And he goes, "Listen, live TV." He goes, "Guys, uh, sorry for being a dick." And I remember I was like, "Be so young." He's he's had dick. I'm like, he goes, "Sorry for being a dick." He goes, "But sometimes the only other option I have is not caring, and I've never been good at that." And I've always been that there's so many times in my life where I go, don't care about this. Let this go. Don't care. And sometimes I, I, I let it go. But a lot of times I don't and I look back and I go, I should have. And sometimes I go, I'm glad I stood my ground. With you in that situation, so much that I should let go and let go of my ego. And I'm also like, there's also the kill the Buddha moment, which always happens. You, you, know? you, you hit me to that. And I never knew that phrase until you. And that's an amazing thing. But I don't, I don't honestly think that you were ever trying to – I don't think you were ever jealous of me. No, I don't think it was jealous. It's just a moment of like feeling that you're beholden to someone who's up here. After a while, you kind of feel like – But you looked well, up to me. Yeah, I did. Absolutely. I still do, man. And you – so Kill the Buddha is sucked. We, we see this around Hollywood. You suck yeah. their energy. You get their <laughs> secrets. And then you kill – you. You usurp them. Yeah. But kill the boot is more negative because it's like you take them out duplicitously. Mm. Being better than your master, which all students should do, right? The yeah. master should teach them to be better. But I wasn't teaching you, but you were learning a lot. Yeah. But I don't know why you wanted to kill me because I was so open with you. No, you weren't. I don't. I guess "kill the booze" made the wrong. But no, phrase, but that's a but... good term. I don't yeah. really. There's a lot of people that I call undercover haters. Were you a little bit of a of a hater? A little bit, but not you. St- I'm not going to get into it because I don't want to go down this rabbit hole. That's another. <laughs> but you did say some things that were really fucking mean to me. Wait, That's why I did can- not want to do this podcast because there are things to you that I was I would say to your face, and I don't want to talk about it now. But you were horrifically mean to me. Really? You can tell me, man. I don't want to talk about it here, okay. but it was just like to the point where I thought that's soul crushing. Really? Yeah, you you said a couple of things, and I was like, "Why would he say that?" Because you went right into my self doubt, huh? And you stepped on it. 
Man, I don't know what those things are. Well, but that's a problem, was, Bill, because you should know that. I should know what no, I said. No, that, that, that's your narcissism. I'm dead fucking serious. The fact that you don't know. Exactly the things I said. That made me actively hate you. Okay. And I don't want to hate you, but I don't actively think about you or hate you. But it was like, like no, you're DTM, dude. You know me. You're dead to me. You know yeah. how I get with people. Yeah. It's like once they're done with me, once I'm done with them, and you crossed that threshold, and I was like, wow, like this motherfucker, like even if I wasn't what he thought I was, I still was a good dude. And it was like you would just – you would go for the juggler at a – like when a person would be hit by a car. This is how you used Whoa. to be. When a person would be hit by a car and bleeding out, you would stand over them smoking a cigarette and going – you probably need some O positive right now, right? <laughs> like that's how, what I equate you with wow. at times. Fascinating. Yeah. And so the fact that you don't know that. I mean, I know that I was, sh- but specifically in ways I was shitty that where those things landed on you in such a well, way. Yeah, that you might not you. know, but you, I don't know. especially when I was doing so much for you and yeah. you would pester me <laughs> to open when times when things were getting rough and yeah. I was like, dude, let, you know, I hate being forced. That's why I'm still, you know, not married. You know, it's like, don't force me. And it's like, anyway, listen, that's a deeper conversation. I don't want to get into it, you but sure? like, there, get into no, it. dude, I'm not a gossip guy. <laughs> that's our personal business. I'm not out there right now. I'm doing that. But you had said some things to me cause I don't want to, mm. but I feel I'm in a much better place. Yeah. But, you know, at that time, I was making Heckler. I was dealing with a lot of careers. By the way, Heckler, if, if you guys haven't seen Heckler, you can get that. Where is that on Amazon Prime? It's on or? Amazon Prime. And it's it a streaming. great documentary. Again, ahead of its time. I think so. Yeah. I. It's all about critical culture. And to me, there were times where you were – you're not passive aggressive. Well, here's what I would say you are. You're a motherfucker. Like, mm. you are a guy. You're a worthy opponent, bro. You're a BDE. You know there's a few of us in town. You know who they are. There's alphas. You know you're one of them. And you will not back down. And just because you're not famous or as successful as other people doesn't mean you can't cut them. And you do. And you're good at it. And that's why you're great at what you do. But at times you can fuck, you know, you got to watch that knife. And so you're not passive aggressive. That would be a bitch move. You're aggressive aggressive and there's sometimes no irony to it. You know what I'm saying? Just right to the heart of And you're like, ooh. You know what I mean? Yeah, I could see that. And again, that's, you know, deep. That's partly why I wanted you on because like, man, I, I, I... don't know all the specifics, but I know that I was why? shitty to you. Why don't you know these specifics, the exact dude? Same what about thing. self-awareness? I know what you're, you're so aware. I mean, look, how I, do you I not spe- fucking I have know specifics this? about things where um, you would tell me certain things, like, "Hey, material-wise, like this is cannibalizing my stuff and stuff." And I would yeah, like, I'm not like oh, that, but you that. did. You we did start becoming like that, and since I was a headliner, I felt like you did do very similar things, which is. By the way, it's not terrible, but it was like I did feel that like I would do the same joke after you, kind of. Yeah, and you and, had every right to tell me not to, and I'd but, be like, "But what? it wasn't I'm that, an artist." But I did feel like you, dude. Also, and this is, and I will say this, and I don't care, you know. Bill has written some of my greatest jokes. Obviously, I had a big hand in it, but he has had a big hand in it, and 
we would do this thing, and I don't care if people judge this. You would say, I'm going to act it out for you, and I'll try it. And if it works, then you can use it. And I had done that on a few things, which I don't mind doing. People do that. I also have my own great jokes, but I don't give a fuck if people write sometimes. I don't give a fuck, right? Um, and I, you would do that. This wasn't even part of it. It was more only personal things with you. I never really had problems with you creatively. It was just that literally you would do the joke as a tester, and I go, you're right. All right, I'll do it next show. And then you would do the joke again <laughs> and again. You go, like, wait, I like, you're like, I like my new joke? And I'm like, asshole. <laughs> that was the tester joke that I'm paying you for that I'm going to rewrite from my voice. And you yeah. go, oh, no, 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 it's my joke. And I go, uh, asshole, we point. talked about it <laughs> on the beach in your rollerblades. <laughs> and you're like, no, no, it's my joke. So yeah, yeah. like, you would do that. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay. So that was the only creative issue. I was like, what am I paying you for? Like, <laughs> And I remember I was like three or three or four years in at this point, so I was like, I thought you longer. <laughs> but look, you you know this about yourself. It seems like you're getting some type of awareness, um, dude. I have this in my life, dude. This is a deeper conversation, but I do have. I'm telling you, and I don't think you are now, and I don't think you were then. I think you were maybe at ten percent of this. But there are something in this business called, in this life, called undercover haters. Yeah. And they will take you down. You have to have people that believe in you so much and breathe fucking life into you that you become this huge fucking balloon and you pull them up. And if they become their own balloon, that's amazing. They can wave and you guys can help each other as balloons. I'm telling you, man, Michael Lovitz, I'm very fortunate to get some sushi dinners with him. It's another whole story of how it happened, but you know, he's one of the greatest creators in our business of what he's made in this business. Yeah. Okay. And he said, make everyone rich around you and share the wealth and you'll get richer. And I believe that. Now there's a lot of people that don't want to do their, my issue with people is they don't want to do their fucking fair share of the work. Cause you know, my work ethic. And yeah. it's like, that's my issue. There's a lot of people that don't work hard. But it, it, it's like, somebody told me something recently. It's like, you know, oh, well, you just want a sycophant. It's like, I fucking hate that word. Yeah. A sycophant is somebody, if you're putting, let me explain this. So I hope this person watches that. If you're putting a needle in your fucking arm and you're getting $100 a week off me, to do something for me and you don't want that money to stop a sycophant if I say hey man this is really good vitamins right and you're like oh yeah Jamie it's awesome a sycophant enables bad behavior yeah. if I go to a waitress and I go fuck you you fucking bitch and I go hey man I wasn't rude to her I go, no she deserved it that's sycophantism yeah believing in someone and fucking helping them become the best version of who they are is called win beneath my wings and People who believe in people in Hollywood get a bad fucking rap and it's a whole other thing happening in this fucking business where people really confuse it. I want to do a whole podcast about what sycophants are not. Yeah. And you have to have people around you who believe in you. And if you look at the most successful comedians, they are fuck. They've had their team with them for a while and then they help their team up. You know what I mean? And their team blows up. Um, 
but you have to do that. And and in a perfect world, people will grow. Your lineage, you know, yeah. look at the people who have great lineages. That's why it's because they were helped and then they help. And that's what I want to do, and that's what I kind of have done. And I've done. I've had a lot of great people work with me, but um, I think sometimes, you know, you were you're a headstrong dude. Yes, I will say this, Jamie. Just so you know, I've always believed in you. I know you I've do. You believe always, in my talent for sure. I think you're a fucking massively, massively talented Thank person. You. So, so that part is, is, I do. And I do. And and bro, I love you for that. And you always do believe in my art. Yeah. You know what I mean? I I, want to write your autobiography as a movie. I don't mind that idea. And you (laughs) and I are the type of guys that somebody can spit in my face. But if I think they're an amazing actor, I'll let them spit. Yeah. Someone could kick me in the balls, but they're an amazing musician. I don't give a fuck. I forgive people's personal shit if they're amazing. So that's why you and I work together so long is because I think you're amazing. You are great. But personally, you and me would butt heads, and you butt heads with not just me. Yeah. But clearly, it looks like you've taken in some humble juice. I don't know <laughs> what happened. Yeah, we. I was talking with uh, Jordan Dunn, who's here uh, about some of this, uh, some of these steps. But yeah, no, you're right. And and look, man, you've been here for a long time. It means a lot, Jamie, that you came. It really does, dude. I think you're a great dude. And I can't wait to see what's happening. Do you have what is happening next? What do you have like planned? Uh well, I got a couple of things. Um. I just shot mine in a new special. Awesome. And I think it's probably going to be on Amazon. I think I had a meeting about it today. Hopefully we'll see. That's who I'm hearing is going to be the next big space for comedy. Um, I did a movie called Trick that just got the Screen Fest in L.A. that premieres October 9th. I think it comes out October 18th on a day and date. But it's uh, Omar Epps is the star and I'm one of the co-leads. It's a horror movie. I have a couple scenes in Ad Astra, and I'm oh, waiting, awesome. I'm waiting to see if I got how if I got cut out though. That's oh, you don't know yet. I don't know. I haven't <laughs> seen it, but I hope I'm still in it. But I had some good scenes, and uh, that's it. I'm on the road. Awesome, man. Out so, here grinding uh, like you, guys. That's Jamie Kennedy. I'm so glad you came once again, man. And you know, maybe we we'll made it. We made it. Well, that was scary to get through. I, I didn't know, know you where you were going to go. I know you were scared. I didn't know where you were going to go. And maybe next time you come back, we can get to the deeper cuts if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, man. Jamie Kenny, I love you, man. Wow. Thanks for coming. Hey, guys. Hope you enjoyed that episode of The After Laugh. If you liked it, make sure you give it five stars on iTunes and tell your friends about it. Subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts, and please spread the word. Thank you so much for supporting. And check out our other podcasts on the Laugh Factory Network, Fanatics with Sean Joshi. It's the after laugh, after laugh. Welcome to the after laugh, after laugh, after laugh. <laughs> after laugh, man. <laughs> Go ahead, pull up a chair. <laughs>